0: In the book of John, I've been telling you that I believe that the book gives to us an order that aligns with the going into the temple, sorry, in the tabernacle. uh, That the beginning of the book is focused very much on the idea of Christ himself being the tabernacle, and that we are coming into the presence of God as we come into the book of John. That there is an emphasis then as we get into. Chapter 1, verse 29, through the end of the chapter, Christ as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, and so we're dealing with the idea of the bronze altar for sacrifices. But then there is the big bowl of water, the bronze bowl of water, the bronze laver of water for cleansing, for spiritual renewal by Christ. That's in John 2 through 3, and we have, for example, um, the cleansing of the temple and the also the idea of the, um, the work of the ceremonial cleansing of the wine at the, at the wedding. Um, so we then find, as we go into John chapters 4 through 7, the idea of Christ as the showbread, um, as one who is to be eaten and drunk. Uh, so the idea of the showbread and the chalices and so this idea of consuming Christ gets emphasized. And now in John 8 and 9, Christ as the light of the world is emphasized. And so we move into thinking about the idea of the lampstand. So this, this original lampstand is talking about in Exodus 25. I want to draw you to think about it a bit. It is a lampstand of pure gold. Gold is used to show value, to show holiness... Um, And so we have this lampstand that is of pure gold. The lampstand is of hammered work, so it is continuous, it is integrous, it is something that does not have different pieces to come apart, it is a continuous piece, and uh, the descriptions that we have outside of the Bible talk about the piping system, some interesting stuff, the complexity of the piping, the way that you would have the oil work, and so the use of burning to draw, right, the way that the... The way that the oil uh, would work is you know it's in these bowls and it would go to the edges of the lamps uh, where you actually have the wick and so there's this wicking action through piping and a continuous piece so I want you to um, this idea of a continuous piece uh, that is made out of a talent of gold and talent of gold is a significant amount of gold it's enough gold to pay a legion for a year okay that is that's what a talent is. So if you want to deploy what would be the modern equivalent of a division of soldiers and to have them function, uh, you can deploy them for a year with a talent of gold. So the, the amount of gold there is enough to field an army. Okay? So that is the amount of gold in this lampstand. So the hammered work of this gold to have this intricate piece that is functional as a lamp with seven lamps on it, the center lamp, and three on each side with a wicking process through a piping out of a single integrous piece of gold. Its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs, and flowers shall be made of one piece. So all of the hammered out piece, it's a continuous piece. And so the skill that it would take to do that Right, this is Holy Spirit-empowered, skilled hammering of this gold. The detail work. The six branches come out of the sides. There are three branches of the lampstand out of one side and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. The um, menorah is captured for us in terms of um, the way this, this lampstand works. Um, it is it is captured for us um, in terms of how it looks on uh, on a wall in Rome after the triumph of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. There's a there's a fresco uh, that is kind of, that is chiseled into stone not a fresco that's not the right word but it's a uh, you can there's a chiseled into stone onto a wall of uh, one of the triumphal monuments that shows that made from the time the first century, of what that would look like, this lampstand. It's carried in as one of the things to celebrate the conquest of Judea and Jerusalem. So, six branches come out of the sides, the three branches on each side. Verse 33 says, Three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on one branch. So the, the bowls are flowers, and these are flowers that hold... The oil. Now, the oil that's to be put in there is pure olive oil. And okay? so olive oil is the fuel used in the lamp. And so these are, these are flowers filled with olive oil that wicks through piping up into these lamps. And so each of them has an intricate piping system. <clears throat> Three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on one branch with an ornamental knob and a flower. And three bowls made like almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornamental knob and a flower. And so, for the six branches that come out of the lampstand. On the lampstand itself, four bowls shall be made like almond blossoms, each with its ornamental knob and flowers. The center, uh, the center of the lampstand... we might call the seventh part or the first part, depending on how you're looking at it, is something that's going to have four places for fuel. And there shall be a knob under the first two branches of the same, and a knob under the second two branches of the same, and a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches that extend from the lampstand. Their knobs and their branches shall be of one piece, all of it shall be one hammered piece of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it. And they shall arrange its lamps so that they give light in front of it. Okay, so the idea that the lamps themselves are positioned to give light in front of it, right, if you simply have a lamp at the top, it diffuses the light throughout. It certainly would go in front, but the idea here of a, of a sort of a focus of it, right, so if it's made of, of gold... Gold is able to make light shine. It's able to reflect light. And so you would position a part of it. You would make it so that there is a reflecting of the light to the front. Or you could bend it slightly, but that doesn't work quite as well because of the fact that if you, don't, if you just bend a light, still the flame goes up if you have a lamp. And so you're kind of blocking it more than anything by the part as you tilt the lamp. So it's, it's not that as much as it would be this idea of, of gold itself reflecting. And it's wick trimmers and their trays shall be of pure gold. Okay, so there's a tray to carry the wick trimmer on. It's gold. The wick trimmer itself, gold. You know, I don't know if you ever had scissors before. I've owned scissors. You probably have too. I have found that if you use scissors over a period of time, they tend to get dull. It's nice to have very hard metal scissors because they get dull slower. Gold is not a particularly hard metal. So this is not only an expensive item, but it would require sharpening more often and sharpening blues part of it. So these trimmers are expensive trimmers. These are trimmers that are not designed for efficiency. They are designed as a luxuriating in the glory of God. And that's what these trimmers are. They are a luxuriating in the glory of God that is what's being commanded there so verse 39 it shall be made of a talent of pure gold with all these utensils and so and see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain okay so regulated principle of making it as the pattern was shown not not inventing it so this idea of the lampstand i've already talked to you about how in in revelation you have the dividing up so here's a common lampstand with a centerpiece and three pieces that are connected and in the book of Revelation you have the churches having individual lampstands Okay, so that that is something that's important to get but the lampstand in the centralized national church of Israel is because of the fact that there was a nation that was a covenanted nation and in the new covenant era we have the lampstand going throughout the world and so all the nations are to be brought in, right? And so every church is supposed to have a lampstand. And a lampstand is something that can be taken away, threatened to be taken away, if a people do not seek to apply the law of God, do not believe, do not maintain what is commanded. And so the thing that's warned about, even for a church that's in good condition overall, is do not allow you to... You're not allowed the first love and the works of first love to be abandoned. Okay? So I want to remind you again that the way that you maintain the lampstand, okay, the way that you have a public lamp, a public light that preaches the word, is by in secret worshiping God in spirit and truth and maintaining a desire to spend time privately with God. Those secret actions, you going into your secret prayer closet, as a public service of maintaining the lamp in the church. You might not see how that happens, but God does. You might not know all of the invisible workings of the spiritual warfare going, around, going on around you, but God does. And Your prayer in secret to maintain the lampstand, your prayer in secret that God would maintain your first love, your taking in the word, your singing praises to God that are a secret praise that only He enjoys. Those are things that are used powerfully to maintain the public lampstand. Now, we're also told that Christ is the light. The lampstand points to Christ. John chapter 8, verse 12. Remember the first 11 verses are the adulterous woman and the uh, injustice there and the fact that there was not proper process occurring, there was not properly both of the criminals being put forward, but rather just the woman taken out, and, and this effort to trap Jesus and his responses, well, which of you is a, is a witness that is fitting, which is without sin, not in the sense of sinless perfection, but in the sense of the one who is able righteously as a witness to proceed to the next step in terms of the carrying out of a sentence? And none of them were able to do so either because of their cowardice towards Rome or because of the fact that their consciences were convicted. But in chapter 8 verse 12 we move from there and now Jesus in contrast to the darkness of their hypocrisy and of their failure of due process and their wicked witness. Okay? I think the emphasis has to be on the wicked witness because they then charge him with not being a true witness. That's the contrast. There's the wicked witness of these people, and then their hypocritical assertion that Jesus is not a good witness. So Jesus in verse 12 says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Okay, so Jesus is the light. He's the light for every nation. There's not a different light for every nation. Okay, some people want to say, That there's a light that's given to people according to their religion. And that people just need to follow the light that's given to them. The only light in the darkness is Christ. The only light in the darkness is Christ. Everything else is darkness. There is an exclusivity. There is a monopoly on truth that Christ has. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness. So, Christ is the light. He's the objective light. And if you follow Christ, you'll be walking in light, not darkness. Okay, so walking in light is walking in accordance with the truth. Okay, so when we think about the light given to us, right, there's the image of God, reason, and the uh, law written on the heart, and the eternal power and divine nature of god so we have the image of god is the light that lights the minds of all men there is verbal propositional revelation right which is a light that's objective that's given externally and then there is illumination which starts with the new birth back in john 3 and then there's the progressive sanctification of ongoing illumination to cause us to understand and to believe more and more truth. Christ himself, obviously, as the God of man, he is the eternal God, the sun, and is the light. But he is also now God with us, incarnate. And so he is like the pillar of fire in Egypt, uh, leading the people out in Exodus to Sinai and into the wilderness and ultimately into. The promised land. So he is like a pillar of fire leading us. So the image here of following him is like following the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke that the people followed in the book of Exodus. And then we know that the church in the new covenant era is maturing, is pulling together and understanding more and more and in covenanted uniformity increasingly. But the standard by which we know whether the church has got something right or not is the revelation of God's Word in the Scriptures. He is the light of the world. He he who follows Christ will not walk in darkness, does not walk in darkness, shall not walk in darkness. What does He do? He, He has light. He is Christ who is the light of life. So Christ is the object of our faith. His doctrine is the object of our faith. There's no difference there. He is the light. When we believe His witness, His doctrine, His teaching, we are believing the light. When we apply what He commands, we are walking in a way that follows Him in the light. Now the Pharisees in verse 13, they said to Him, You bear witness of Yourself. Your witness is not true. We talked about last time how so that witness is, is light, right? You can talk about witness as light. Um, logos or witness or um, any of the uh, materion, the, any of these words about doctrine teaching what you're saying, we can relate all those things to, to light and to logos. So they say, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. And again, this is legal validity, it's not acceptable. It doesn't mean that it's inherently false. But one person talking isn't necessarily lying, but it's not legally acceptable in a court. And so Jesus, remember, makes the assertion: Look, even if I did bear witness of myself, it'd be true because I'm God. He says, because I know where I'm from and where I'm going. You don't know where I'm from or where I'm going. And so this idea that they don't—they don't know what has been revealed, and they're not God, so they don't have the knowledge inherently. So he—he he goes into verse 15. There's an assertion that they judge according to the flesh, and he judges no one. Remember, this judging no one we talked about last time doesn't mean that Christ fails to judge ever. He judges according to the standard of God. And so the Father, who is God equally with the Son, gave a standard to Jesus, and Jesus judges according to that standard. So the judgment is ultimately the judgment of the Father. Now, verse 16 Yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. Okay, so his judgment would be according to the fathers. The Father and the Son, they wouldn't disagree about anything. Okay, this is an assertion of the intellectual union of the Trinity. 17, it is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Okay, so the assertion of the Father and the Son. Now, God's word is true even if it's just God, one person. Okay, but there are two persons of the Trinity. And so the idea of the two or three witnesses principle is an interesting way of pointing to the Trinity as well. Right? The two or three witnesses principle and the fact that God is able to give us the two or even three witnesses uh, principle. And So Jesus is appealing to that and saying the Father and the Son are both bearing testimony together. Verse 19. Then they said to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Okay, So, so this, remember, he's saying, You don't know me, and you don't know my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. So there's this assertion that Jesus keeps making these assertions, And John emphasizes the assertions that the Jews are not true Jews. They have rejected the God of Moses. They've rejected the God of the Old Testament. And if they had accepted Moses and accepted the God of the Old Testament, they would have accepted Jesus. And if they accepted Jesus, that shows they also accept the Father, and they also accept Moses. Okay, So John is doing this over and over again. John, his gospel is generally thought to be the last of the four to be written, and so we have the book of John, we have his letters, and we have the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation emphasizes greatly the the harlotries of uh, the harlotries of uh, the, the Jewish Church, the the synagogues that reject Christ, and emphasizes Jerusalem as a harlot city. And so this this emphasis on you haven't accepted me, and that shows that you haven't accepted the Father, is is a part of this raising of the conflict like we last talked about as well. So verse 21, he's saying they rejected the light of the Father. They rejected that. So he's the light. If they accepted him, that would show they would accept the light. They're not accepting light. There's a rejection there. So this assertion of they're in darkness. Verses 21 forward, Jesus said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So, the dying in sin here is this dying in guilt, and they're going to seek him, again, not to follow him, but in order to kill him. And so, he's talking about where he's going in terms of uh, going to glorification and ultimately his ascension. So, the question of will he kill himself comes up, we talked about this kind of growth, that occurs there from previously. They're going. Is he going to go to the to the diaspora? Okay, no. Is he is he going to kill himself? What's going on? They're getting closer, you know, because he's going to be killed by them. Jesus then asserts in verses twenty three and twenty four that these guys are earthly, and this phrase, "I am not of this world," Jesus is saying he came from heaven, and there's this idea that in John 3, that from this world, in terms of natural things, the only thing that can come is stuff that is corrupt. Um, human nature is corrupt. Corruption is impossible to avoid in procreation in terms of the natural order of things. Christ has a special process whereby he is created not by ordinary generation, but he has a virgin birth. And so, but this also applies to the soul. What's born of the flesh is flesh. What is born of the Spirit is Spirit. And Jesus is saying that he is from heaven. And so now this kind of echoes back to John 3 and the teaching that we need to be born from above. We need to be born from the power of the Holy Spirit. So there's a need for an intervention that's supernatural, this new birth. So Jesus again asserts that they're going to die in their sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So most of them are going to reject him. Some of them will believe. And at the same time, the general condition is that you will die in your sins unless you repent and believe. That is the condition that man finds himself in. So we need to remember the condition of sinfulness is the condition of unbelief. That's the root place. Man does not seek, does not know, does not do righteousness. Right? The failure to understand the truth and the failure to believe the truth are these things that are the root. And so because of the fact that we do not start with faith, we from our very first moment are sinning. You are required every second, every nanosecond of every day to think about God as the one you are seeking to glorify. Think about how naturally it comes to you to seek what you want. Okay? What do you want? Your desires, sometimes you don't even consciously examine them. You just kind of operate off of desires without carefully considering what those desires are. Our desires, if we were sinless, if we were righteous, would be to glorify God, and we would think of ourselves as instruments to glorify God. And we would look for the things that we want in so far as, how do I do things that are for the glory of God? We would be operating to glorify God and thinking about ourselves as things to be maintained to glorify God. As opposed to, I want this thing, how do I get this thing? How do I satisfy this desire? The desire would be to glorify God and we would think of how do we order our lives, how do we order our actions so as to accomplish that goal? That's what we want to be reformed to do. That's what it means to be focused on the glory of God. And so, if we die in sins, we die in a place where we do not seek the glory of God, we do not believe the gospel, and all of our actions are for our whole lives pointed at something other than the glory of God. When we are given faith there is a change of perspective because as opposed to fulfilling whatever wicked desire, fulfilling the desire for food, the desire for, you know, for improper sexual pleasure, the desire for power, the desire for money, the, whatever the desire is, whatever this thing is that takes the place of God, we from thinking that is the good that will make us happy, there's a change to think God and the knowledge of Him will make us happy. That God... And the knowledge of him is our good. That the glory of God in display is the purpose in history. And so there is this, this change. The reason I'm pointing this out is because I want to help you to see the degree of darkness that is natural in man. I want you to think about how you as a Christian, after years or months or whatever period of time studying the Word, thinking about the Word, taking the Word in, still have to consciously get yourself to think about glorifying God and how deeply ingrained it is to just do what you feel like doing. When we are in a glorified condition, what we will feel like doing is glorifying God. There will be no conflict. Our feeling like doing is based upon what we believe, and what we have habituated ourselves to do. So the Christian life is the process of finding these hidden beliefs that shape our desires. And removing the false beliefs by arguing with ourselves, finding the lies, and asserting the truths to remove them. To dispel the darkness with the light that is contrary to it. To meditate on those things and to repeat them and to argue them to ourselves until they become a second nature, a nature that displaces what previously was natural to us, so that we rehabituate our patterns of thoughts and our words and behaviors so that it now feels like doing that. You probably have areas of sin that you can remember where it used to feel natural to do that sin, and now it feels natural to do the virtue that has displaced it. Any place where there is a remaining habit of a vice is a place where that darkness reigns and where you need to do the same sort of taking captive there. Being in your sins is being in your sins in terms of your nature, but it's also being in your sins in guilt. Okay, The in is a, an idea of union. So being in your sins is, is a legal guilt there. So verse 25 Then they said to him, Who are you? And Jesus said to them, Just what I have been saying to you from the beginning, this is an insertion of divinity, 26. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. Again, world there. Remember this. World is always talking about, we're going out to the nations. John uses world over and over again, and Jesus, like with John 3, when he says, he so loves the world. It is not about every single individual. It is about the idea of the nations. And that is in contrast to the single nation, the Jews. You need to habituate that thought pattern and be ready to talk about that. Because Armenians and Roman Catholics and anybody who teaches that God loves everybody and wants to save everybody is going to go to John 3. And you need to know that all over the book of John the phrase the world is used and he's talking about the nations is distinct from The one nation, the Jews. Verse 27. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. Okay, so the Father sent him. The Father is true. Here's this true witness. um, And he is continuing to dispute with them about the authority of his own witness. So the whole dispute, he is communicating light. They reject his light. He is saying it's not just his light, it's a valid testimony. It is also not only valid because he's God, but it's also valid because he and the Father, both of whom are God, are both testifying, and there's still a rejection of it, and they don't understand who he's talking about. They don't understand his divinity. They don't understand that he is talking about the Father, that he is equal to the Father, and when he makes the claims, they start to treat him as though he's blaspheming. 28, then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things. Okay, so these are words from the Father. He's speaking the Father's words. His crucifixion is a fulfillment of prophecy. When they crucify him, it will cause some people to recognize, to repent, and it will also be something that makes them realize That he is one who is speaking exactly what he was told to do, told to speak, by the Father, all the prophecies being fulfilled. Right? When you when he's crucified and you just read Psalm twenty two, right? Read Psalm twenty two and look at the testimonies of the crucifixion of Christ, you go, Wow, this is overwhelming. The way in which there's fulfillment of prophecy here is overwhelming. The suffering servant prophecy, that of Isaiah. The Isaiah 53 passage about what is accomplished. All of these things throughout the scriptures that give to us a very clear testimony of what would happen with Christ and his crucifixion is a sort of magnification point where you go, all the stuff he did is amazing, and then there's the fact that he fulfills this suffering servant role. He is not doing this just to fulfill what would be in his general human desire, but in order to honor the Father. As my father taught me, I speak these things. he's, He's speaking words. So what we have here is Jesus is applying sola scriptura. He's giving only the propositional revelation that was given by the father. He is applying the regulated principle to obey God in all of life. That what he does is what he was taught to do. He does nothing of himself. And he is exercising a delegated rule from the father to apply his leadership role to accomplish what he was sent to do, he's fulfilling the mission that he was sent to do. Verse 29, and he who sent me is with me. So the Father's with him. We talked about how the promise of the presence of God is always a promise to help you to conquer your enemies. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please Him. Okay, the powerful presence of God uh, to help you to accomplish things is magnified, is put on display, is is there with the application of what God has commanded. If we do what God commands in faith, we have expectation that God is going to powerfully use it. How does, what is the causal chain? What is the mechanistic series of events? What's the ways in which material things cause the lampstand of a local church to be maintained by your private worship in your prayer closet? Can you, can you, can you map out the ways in which the air molecules from your psalm singing in private has a butterfly effect of making it so the preaching here is good. That is is not the thing. There is an invisible world you do not see. There are angels and demons engaged in combat about you. God himself chooses to cause people to break or stand. His decree, his decree is what causes things. And he relates things in a way that we do not see the causal chain, but He has revealed it to us. He's explained it to us. He's given it to us in His Word. He has told us which things will result in which things. We have a promise that He is with us. We are told to be courageous, we are told to apply His law. And the application of His law is a thing that brings about marvelous results. And it, it gives yields that are 30, 1,600 fold. 30, 1600 fold. Okay? There are a number of people in this church, so there's maybe someplace between 30 and 60. Okay? I would posit to you that the Lord giving me sufficient understanding to work here and preach and those of you who were here at the initial covenanting, I, mean, I don't know how many, it's been several years now, we, I think we just passed an anniversary of it, we're about to. And so this idea that that preaching, that small group, and that preaching that has occurred has resulted in already something like a 30 to 60 full deal. And I would posit to you that each of you being faithful would result in something like that. That if you speak the word, if you tell people the word, if you seek to apply the law, if you are courageous, if you are willing to say what needs to be said and do what needs to be done, and you look to God and you pray for his blessing upon it, that what you can expect to see is that the world gets turned upside down. And so, we have a promise of God to help us to conquer. And that was true with Christ. He turned the world upside down. His apostles turned the world upside down. And we have a promise of the Father to be with us, of Christ to be with us. When we give us the Great Commission, Christ promises to be with us. And so I want to encourage you that your private worship, your family worship, your public worship attendance and participation in it, and your efforts to apply the law to rule your household and to do things in your daily life, they have powerful 30, 60, or 100 fold effects. You know, in Genesis. Um, we see that Isaac, he inherits wealth from his father, and then immediately after he inherits this enormous wealth from his father, after his father passes away and he's the head of the estate, he plants grain, and it says that year he had a hundredfold harvest. Okay? And so everybody got jealous of him. right? That, that idea, there's, we, when we take what was given to us and we faithfully do what we're commanded to do with it, even if it's already enormous, there's great power in the multiplying work that God does as a promise of God to be with us. Now, if we do what pleases God, if we do what His law commands, there is an expectation of blessing on it. Verse 31, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed Him, If you abide in My word, you are My disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Okay, so, abiding in the word here is... Like he's preaching, Jesus is giving them light. And in this context, they're talking about his witness. And so the idea is, okay, you've heard me say some things, and some of these things were very offensive to some of you. And some of you are saying you believe, some of you are are affirming what's being said here, you're saying this is true. Stick around a while and keep listening to my witness. And if you keep sticking around, then that's going to be evidence that you are in fact one who believes it. Okay? This is not the condition of perseverance being laid out. This is not, people will quote this and they'll say, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Therefore, justification is by believing and believing for a long time. And if you don't believe for a long time, then you can lose your salvation. And or they'll say, You were never really saved, but you actually had faith, but that faith was temporary. Okay? you can have zero assurance. Zero assurance. Zero. Not one, not half, not 1.3. You can have zero, zero Zero ins- assurance. If you can have saving faith and lose it. If you can believe the gospel and lose it, then you never know whether you have saving faith. If, if somebody tells you, saving faith is believing these doctrines and continuing to believe them, then you always have to sit there and go, even if I believe all the truth of all the scriptures... If I stop believing it tomorrow, I'll be damned. And so you can have zero assurance. Abiding in the sense of perseverance is a promise, not a condition. Okay, so this text, I want you guys to walk away knowing what he's saying is, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. There are only two systematic ways that you can interpret this. There are only two systematic ways you can interpret this. One, persevering in the faith is evidence to other people. Or two, persevering under the preaching is evidence that your profession is true. Okay? This cannot be an assertion that saving faith requires you to persevere or it's not saving faith. Because that makes perseverance, again, a condition rather than a promise. And if we do that, justification is no longer by faith alone. We have contradiction in the Bible. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And we're talking about witness. That's the context. Okay, so in other words, if you keep listening to my witness, then you're showing that you are actually my disciples. And if you keep coming and hearing the word, then you will know the truth. Do you see how that makes sense? Like, if you keep putting yourself under the ordinary means, it's going to result in a greater knowledge. It's going to result in you getting taught. Okay, so you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. The context of free here is a Christian freedom from obedience to sin. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you shall be made free? Now, I want to take a second here and I want you guys to think about Christian liberty because I don't know about you, But I have people talk to me about Christian liberty in totally nonsensical, non-reformed ways, in reformed circles, all the time. Almost nobody talks to me about Christian liberty in the proper way. I talk about Christian liberty all the time. I really like Christian liberty. I'm a fan. I like it. Let's do it. Let's have that. But almost every time somebody else brings up Christian liberty to me, it's because they want to sing things that aren't psalms, or they want to do something that's not commanded. Or they want to be left alone. They want to do things that historically reformed people have said that's sin. And they go, my Christian liberty lets me do this thing. Alright, let's go to chapter 20 of the Westminster Confession. Okay, when Jesus talks about being free, is he saying, here's the freedom to do a thing that God has not commanded. Do you guys remember what we just read? Do you guys remember Jesus saying, I don't do anything except what the Father tells me to do. I don't do anything except what the Father shows me to do. I don't say anything except for what the Father told me to say. Okay. So Jesus' is freedom, he's not trying to say, I just want to do what I want to do, man. Give me my Christian liberty. I'm going to go play Xbox. Right? That's not what he's doing. What he's doing is he's saying freedom from sin. So go to chapter 20 of the Westminster Confession. Of Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. Section 1. The liberty which Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin. Okay, the guilt of sin. Freedom from the guilt of sin means Christ paid for your sins, you're not guilty for it anymore. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. The condemning wrath of God. Okay, so God's deserved hatred, the reason for our deserved hatred, Guilt has been removed, and therefore, there's no condemning wrath. There's no curse, the curse of the moral law. right? So, we don't get God's hatred because Christ died for us. We don't have curse of the moral law in terms of the idea of the uh, curse of hell. Ultimately, all curse will be removed from us, and our guilt is gone. We're all free from that. Amazing. And in their being delivered from this present evil world. Okay, so we're delivered from this present evil world. That doesn't mean we get to get out of this place. We're not getting helicoptered out. What it means is that we are no longer slaves to it. We're not a part of that kingdom. We are in the city of man, not the city sorry, the city of God, not the city of man. Bondage to Satan. We're no longer slaves to Satan and dominion of sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. In the context of John 8 That is the specific thing that he is saying is that we are no longer under the dominion of sin if we are believers, that we are able to now do righteousness. We are free. One of the things of Christian liberty is freedom from the evil of afflictions. Okay, so the evil of afflictions, what's that? Bad stuff happens to you, right? Everybody have bad stuff happen to them? I have bad stuff happen to me. Happen to you? Okay. So if bad stuff happens to you, is it something that ultimately is for your harm? Is God like, I'm going to cause your flat tire to be for your destruction because I hate you forever? Or is it, I'm giving you a flat tire because I'm giving you a test, and it is for your good to help you to grow in patience and strength and to overcome, and by doing this well in faith for my glory, it will be a blessing. Okay, so the evil of afflictions is disappearing. The sting of death, as opposed to death being this thing where you go, I'm dead, and now I'm going to hell. Right? That things. Now, instead, it's, I am dead, and I'm being removed from all curse, and I am in the glorified condition, and I am awaiting the resurrection. The sting of death is gone. The victory of the grave. Our bodies will be raised. Christ's body was already raised. And everlasting damnation. We are, we are saved from everlasting damnation as also in their free access to God. So Christian, so far, Christian liberty, everybody here seeing Christian liberty doesn't mean I get to do what I want apart from the law of God. Anybody, anybody seeing in the, the Reformed doctrine of Christian liberty yet, the I can do what I want and you can't tell me to do what the law of God says and to only do what the law of God says? Anybody, anybody seeing that here? I'm not seeing it either in the list. I just wanted to check. So then, as also in their free access to God. So we are... Our Christian liberty includes the ability to access God easily. To, to go in and just interrupt him whenever we want. Hey, Dad. Hi. Knock, knock. It's not a good time. I don't really care. I just want to talk to you. Okay, You're going to take my, my appointment that I just made right now. That's fantastic. Thank you, Father. Right? That, that ability to just walk in and interrupt whenever you want. You're In an important meeting, that's good. Why don't you guys wait a bit? I'm going to talk to my dad. Right? That's, that's the free access that we have to God is to come in anytime we want, interrupt whatever meetings he has going on, put all the angels on hold, say, let's talk. Free access to God. And they're yielding obedience unto him. Not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and a willing mind. Okay, We owe God slavish obedience. We are freed from that slavish obedience to get reward or to avoid condemnation. And instead as children who are already saved from condemnation, we get to obey God as our purpose for our joy out of faith, out of gratitude, and to receive blessing for it. The angels are like God's employees. He pays them a wage he's promised. And then we're his kids who walk in and he goes, these angels, you guys get $1,000 dollars every two weeks for doing this thing and he says, hi, sons, all of you, even you ladies, you're your sons because you have an inheritance, you have the inheritance of sonship, okay? Hi, son, here's the million dollars a week you're getting paid for doing a tenth of the work really badly that these guys are doing. Okay? That's what we get. That's the freedom that we get. All which were common also to believers under the law. Okay? It was common to believers under the law. Law, they're being used to mean Old Testament. But under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged in their freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law. We are free from the ceremonial law. All the ceremonies of the Old Testament, we are free from, to which the Jewish church was subjected. And in greater boldness of access to the throne of grace, we get to interrupt twice as often. We go, Dad, could you put on a meeting so I can interrupt it? And he goes, sure, son. Here's a bunch of angels waiting around. You guys need to wait so my son can talk to me right now. Why would you call the meeting? So this could happen. I wanted to increase the boldness of access. To which the Jewish church was subjected and in greater boldness of access to the throne of grace and in fuller communications of the free spirit of God. You know what, son? It's supposed to be a million dollars a week. We're going to do two million dollars a week. than believers under the law did ordinarily partake of. All right. There's the freedom. I didn't see any freedom there to just do what we feel like apart from finding a commandment. Did you? Did you see one in there? I didn't see one either. Christian liberty is not just doing what you feel like apart from a commandment of God. Christian liberty is all of that stuff. And that's pretty awesome. I think it's awesome. You think it's awesome? I think it's pretty awesome. It's a cool list. I like it. Let's not blaspheme God or take his name in vain by calling Christian liberty, doing what we feel like apart from a command. I want you guys to know, when people use Christian liberty to justify doing what they feel like apart from a command, they're using the label Christian liberty to justify sin. And what they're doing is they're taking God's name in vain. Two, section two. God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it. Okay, That's the other thing about Christian liberty, and that part's glorious. God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men. No man gets to tell you what you have to believe. No man gets to tell you what your duties are. God alone is Lord of the conscience and he's left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men. People use Christian liberty to say, I'd like to do this thing that is a commandment of men. I'd like to be able to present this doctrine. That's a doctrine of men. That is destructive of Christian liberty. That's not Christian liberty. That is Orwellian nonsense. That's calling war peace and peace war. That's calling liberty slavery and slavery liberty. I want you guys to be outraged when people pretend like liberty is slavery and slavery is liberty. You should recognize it as a type of blasphemy against God and a taking of His name in vain. God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to His word or beside it. If matters of faith, that means anything you're supposed to believe or worship the way that you serve God. So that to believe such doctrines... Or to obey such commandments out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience. Okay? If you believe doctrines that are not demonstrable from the word of God because some man said it, you are betraying liberty of conscience. If you are obeying some commandment that is not taught in the scriptures because some man taught it, and you simply are obeying it out of a sense of a duty to obey that man, You are making that man God. And you are betraying liberty of conscience. This zeal for liberty is the Puritan zeal for liberty. This zeal for liberty is costly in the moment. But it has a return that is 30, 60, or 100-fold. It makes free peoples, free churches, free families, free individuals. If we say that people have a duty to believe doctrines that some man or the church or an institution or the state is giving to us, that's requiring an implicit faith in someone other than God. It's an absolute and blind obedience, and it's to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. Okay, so our great care to resist the doctrines of devils and tradition and men is an effort to maintain liberty of conscience. And to honor the Lord of the conscience, to not subject our consciences to others. Three, they who upon pretense of Christian liberty do practice any sin or cherish any lust do thereby destroy the end of Christian liberty, which is that being delivered out of the hands of our enemies, we might serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Okay. What's the goal? What's the end of Christian liberty? The goal is to free us From the world, the flesh, and the devil. All of our enemies. So that we can serve the Lord without fear of them. In holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Exodus is a book that puts that in story form. The people were enslaved. And God frees them from slavery to Pharaoh so that they can serve him. Okay, it's a book on Christian liberty. Taking people out of service to Pharaoh so that they can serve God in spirit and truth. And notice when you read Exodus and you read the books that follow, the kicking against the goads, the complaining, the whining, the the world was better, Egypt is better, they had leeks and onions. Like leeks and onions. Onions! That's the kind of crazy stuff we do. Leeks and onions longing. The onions are good. Section 4. And because the powers which God has ordained and the liberty which Christ has purchased, are not intended by God to destroy, but mutually to uphold and preserve one another. They who upon pretense of Christian liberty shall oppose any lawful power or the lawful exercise of it, whether it be civil or ecclesiastical, resist the ordinance of God. Now I'd add, it could be familial, it could be household. If you resist any lawful authority or the lawful exercise of it, you resist the ordinance of God. And for their publishing of such opinions or maintaining of such practices as are contrary to the light of nature or the known principles of Christianity, whether concerning faith, worship, or conversation, conversation there means behavior, or to the power of godliness or such in erroneous opinions or practices as either in their own nature or in the manner of publishing or maintaining them are destructive to the external peace and order which Christ has established in the church they may lawfully be called to account and proceeded against by the censures of the church and by the power of the civil magistrate. And again, I might add, you could apply the rod in the household. Those things. Christian liberty, we have seen a definition of it. Christian liberty is doing that which God commands rather than what men command. Christian liberty is a freedom from a bunch of awful stuff To do good stuff. There is no neutrality. God's law is a perfect rule of obedience. It covers everything. And it tells us the way of liberty. It is a lamp unto our feet. And without the lamp, if you go hiking at night and you don't have any light and you're on a trail, let me know how long you stay on it before you hit cacti. Without the lamp, we don't know how to get anywhere. We don't know what the path is. We don't know what we're supposed to do. So Jesus said, John 8, verses 34, Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. The freedom that the truth gives, the knowledge of the truth, frees us from slave position towards sin. Whenever we commit sin, we are obeying sin. We're slaves of sin. A slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Okay. Now, this is not teaching us about the path of justification. It is not saying... Perfect obedience is required in order for you to be a son. What is being said here is you need to recognize objectors. We're Abraham's descendants. We've never been in bondage to anybody. How can you say you shall be made free? Yeah, you're enslaved to sin. He's saying there are people who have to deal with slavery to sin and they need to acknowledge that. And if they don't repent of their slavery to sin, if they don't acknowledge the fact that they are enslaved to sin, they do not understand what they are repenting of. The, the rejection of total depravity, the rejection of the idea that we're incapable of doing any good apart from God regenerating us is a rejection of what it is we need to be saved from. So he's saying, you guys are slaves to sin. A slave does not abide in the house forever. The house there would be the church. The house of God. But a son abides forever. So a son remains in there forever. Forever. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Now, in this life, if we're given a knowledge of the gospel, it's going to result in us putting off some sin. It's going to result in us doing some good work. And we know in the glorified condition, it's going to be a total freedom from all sin. And we're going to only do good works forever. Without any admixture. That kind of liberty, that is the glorious liberty of the sons of God. That is the glorious liberty of the sons of God. I want you to see the law of God as the glorious instruction manual of liberty that it is. And I want you to see it as perfect. It is a perfect rule of obedience. There is nothing lacking, nothing missing. It shows us how to be free men. They say, when you get a baby, it doesn't come with an instruction manual. That's true. Bibles aren't handed out with the baby. However, the Bible is the instruction manual, the book of Proverbs in particular, for raising them. The Bible is an instruction manual for the free man and for free thought. You want to be a free thinker? Think the thoughts of God. Your mind will race and others will think like sluggards. The Bible is the way of liberty. The Bible is the message of liberty. It proclaims liberty throughout the land and to all the inhabitants thereof. The Bible sets men free. It gives knowledge. And those men who are set free, they will be free indeed. They will actually be free and they will be free forever. They will be sons who are not cast out of the house. And they will in this life even begin to manifest the actions of free men and eventually their freedom will be manifest fully. Christ was to us the example of the freest man to ever walk the earth. And he didn't look for any opportunity to do anything except for exactly the pattern given to him by the Father. That is liberty, friends. Comments, questions, and objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights